Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. If you have uh, not been coming to our Sunday night services, uh, first of all, shame on you. What are you thinking? You're missing some good stuff. Uh, Secondly, then you've missed the lesson on Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3, God uses John to pen seven letters to seven churches that are existing at the time. Now these are, are real churches in real areas of the world, and John wrote these letters down and sent them off to these specific churches but it's preserved in Scripture for us because God was not having John just write a letter to a particular church somewhere in the world. He was writing to the church. He was writing to us. And of course, we saw in this lesson that each letter that John wrote to a different church, the Church of Philadelphia, the Church of all these different churches, they were really God talking about the stage of the church. And how the church would kind of grow and mature and change as we lead up to the end times. And the last letter is to the church of Laodicea. And we saw in our, in our lesson that the church of Laodicea is really symbolic and it, it, it talks about the final age or the final stage of the church before the end times. And we are currently living in that age. Now... That doesn't mean that the end is, I mean, the end is near, but when you're talking about God and eternity, you know, a thousand years is near, uh, a million years is still pretty near. Uh, so it's like, say the end is near, it could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be in a hundred million years, and it's still near in God's eyes, because in God's eyes, eternity, time's meaningless to Him. But anyway, we are in the last stage of the church. Now, one of the things that John, or God tells us, is going to mark this church, this church of Laodicea, the church age we live in, is it's going to be an apostate church. Now what this means is the church is going to be mostly made up of false believers. People who think they are saved, but they're actually not. They've believed the false gospel, they've twisted the gospel for their own uh, own, own ideals and their own beliefs. And so the church is going to be uh, mostly made up of unbelievers. Now, there will be a group of believers, of true believers in the church, but the majority, and I know you're thinking, you're thinking our church? I'm not, I'm not saying New Grace Baptist Church, I'm saying the church. But hey, pay attention, because it may be you. Uh, but the church itself, the main church, the church of God, will be made up of and even led by people who think they are believers, who think they are truly saved, but they're not. And if you really, if you really pay attention to the church today, you can see that a lot of churches, especially mega churches and all these type of different things, they they are they are are not really preaching a gospel; they're preaching prosperity. They're preaching, you know, God, you know, just come as you are. And I've heard, I've heard preachers say and pastors say, uh, preach things that, you know, like, well, sin is only sin if you think it's sin. 
You know, God doesn't give us a, a list of do's and don'ts. God doesn't make an objective truth and an objective sin. If, if you think something's sin, then it's sin. Which means, if you think murdering someone is sin, then it's sin for you. But if I don't think it's, it's sin, I can murder you for a moment. You know, government would probably disagree with that statement. But you get the point. I can live my life however I want to. And if I don't feel bad about it, that means God hasn't convicted me about it. Which means whatever I'm doing is not sin. I can cheat on my wife, I can cheat on my taxes, I can, I can do whatever I want to do. And as long as I don't feel bad about it, it's not sin. That is a false gospel. And the church today is a, an apostate church. It's a church that is made up of a lot of people who they do religious things, they say religious things, they act the right way, but they're not truly saved. This is, a, this is nothing new. You know, Jesus talked about this in the book of Matthew. He said in Matthew 70, He goes, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of the Father, which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And have the, in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Jesus even said there's going to be a lot of people in the end that are going to stand before God in judgment. And they're going to say, man, we went to church. We gave our tithes and offerings. I pastored. I ministered. I was a missionary. I was whatever. I did everything right, God. And God's going to say, but I didn't know you. You were still not a believer. You know, sadly, faith is something that too many people they confess with their mouth, but they never truly believe it in their heart. They say what they think is, is right, but they never truly believe what God says. Billy Graham used to say that many people miss heaven by 18 inches. The distance between your brain and your heart. They, they know the right things, but they never truly confess their faith. 1 Samuel 28 gives us a picture of a man like this. A man who thinks he's doing everything right, who thinks he's serving God, who thinks he's on the right path, but his in life shows a different story. And it serves as a warning to those of us in the church. And so, first and second Samuel, of course, it gives us the story of the, the life of David. And of course, when we started this life of David, we look way back to the beginning at Eli and his sons and the birth of Samuel and Saul becoming king. And Saul was Israel's choice for king, but he was not God's choice. He was not who God wanted to lead the nation of Israel into greatness. He was who the people chose. And, you know, it was understandable. He was, he was the Bible says, he was tall, he was handsome, he was strong, he was a great warrior, he was a, a fierce leader. So he was the, the obvious choice for the people to choose as King. But when he becomes king, he, he stops trusting God. He begins doing things his own way. He begins disobeying the Lord and God rejects him. After God rejects him, he has Samuel, the, the prophet of the time, the greatest prophet of Israel at the time. Samuel goes down to, to Jesse's house and he, he anoints David as the next king over Israel. Now David is just a little boy at this time. He's not... 
uh, coronated king, but he is anointed king. He is God's choice that one day he will ascend the throne. And Saul figures this out. Saul knows that God's chosen someone else, and eventually he discovers that God has chosen David. And so Saul becomes jealous. He becomes paranoid. He tries to kill David five times before David finally gets the hint and runs. You know, I don't think it would have taken me five times. You try to kill me once. Okay, maybe it's an accident. Maybe you didn't try. Maybe you didn't really mean to try to spear me through the wall. Second, third time, I'm thinking something's wrong. So it took five times before David says, you know what, I don't think Saul really likes me. Runs for his life, flees in the wilderness. Saul spends a decade chasing David through the wilderness. He's, he's forsaken his family duties. He's forsaken his kingly duties. He's given up everything to track David down and to kill him. Look at verse number, chapter 28. Look at verse number 3. Sorry, I was in there. So chapter 28, verse number 3. Now Samuel was dead. And all Israel lamented him and buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and wizards out of the land. Now of course... Samuel's the, the priest at the time, the high priest and the prophet of God, and he's the one that first, you know, made Saul king because the people chose him, then he anointed David as king, and now he's dead. And so, you know, they have this big, this big uh, uh, memorial for him. But then we get an interesting little fact at the end. It says, and Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and wizards out of the land. Basically... Saul kicked out all the fortune tellers, kicked out all the magicians, kicked out all the psychics, got anyone that had kind of uh, demonic or you know, spiritual but not godly practices. He, he booted them out of the land. And God had commanded him to do that. So Saul, you know, he did one good thing. He obeyed God and got rid of all the fortune tellers and magicians and psychics and things like that. Look at verse number four. And the Philistines gathered themselves together and came and pitched in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together and they pitched in Gilboa. And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. That is a a theme of Saul's life after God rejected him. Remember way back when, when he ignored God's command to destroy the Amalekites and he brought back the king and he brought back all the, the best of the, 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 the flock and he tried to justify it. Oh, we did it so we could offer a sacrifice to God. We did it for God's glory. But God rejected him. The Bible says the Spirit left him. Saul rejected God, disobeyed God, sinned against God, and so God rejected him. And ever since that fellowship between Saul and, and, and God has been broken, Saul's life has been marked by fear. He doesn't trust anybody. He's paranoid about what other people think about him or saying about him. Fear and jealousy are usually the first indicators that you're out of fellowship with God. 
When you are fully surrendered to God, when you and God are, are on the right page and you're, you're walking with God and living for God and, and you, you read His Word and you hear Him talk to you and you pray and you know you're getting through and you just know that you and God are right there. You have confidence because you know God's going to supply all your needs. There's no need for you to try to do things on your own because God's promised, I'll take care of you, I'll provide for you. He may not give you everything you want, but He's going to give you everything you need. You're going to eat. You may not eat steak and lobster every day, but you're going to eat you know, mac and cheese and beanies and weenies are fine. They, they'll take care of you. And so when you are close to God, you know you have confidence God's going to provide for you. You are not worried about what other people think of you. Because you're accepted by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's accepted you as you are. He loves you. He's there for you. He is, he is on your side. You're not worried about death and tragedy because you know for the believer death is victory. And even the Bible tells us that not one hair falls off your head without God knowing it. Now some of you like Reggie, you're like, well I don't have any more hairs left on my head so what am I going to do there? He knows that you're bald. He knows everything. God is there for you. But when you go out on your own, when you lose trust in God, your life is marked by fear and jealousy. Look at verse number 6. And Saul inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. So Saul, he does what he should do. He goes to the priests, he goes to the religious leaders, he seeks God's guidance. He's praying to God, God, what would you have me to do? The Philistines are attacking I don't know what to do. Guide me, direct me, show me. God doesn't, doesn't answer. So it goes to the priest. Hey, can you find out what God wants me to do? And the priests go to God on Saul's behalf, and God is quiet. But what is this, this Urim? Not by the priest or by Jews, or by Urim. Urim um, were the jewels that the high priest wore on his breastplate. They were given and kind of told what to do in the book of Deuteronomy. And God gave Urim these jewels on the breastplate of the high priest as a, a means to determine what God's will was. It's kind of like a, a spiritual magic eight ball. In a magic eight ball where you shake it up and say, is this going to happen? You know, yes, all signs point to yes, or I doubt it, or, you know, kind of foggy right here. That's what they were. On the back of these, on these stones, they had two sides. On one side of both stones were the words yes. On the other side were the words no. And they would roll these stones like dice. And if it came up yes, yes, that was God saying, hey, get on it. Do it. If it came up no, no, that was God saying, no, don't, don't go down that path. But if it came up yes, no, or no, yes, it was unclear. God was quiet about the matter. So Saul is chucking these dice over and over and over again, and every time he shakes the magic eight ball, it says signs are fuzzy. He gets no clarity from God. God has completely left him. He has no idea what to do. God has shut him off. So Saul had wanted to go out on his own, and now God's letting him. Look at verse number 7. Then said Saul unto his servants, Seek me a woman that has a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, 
Behold, there is a woman that hath a familiar spirit in Endor. Now, Saul, we just read earlier, Saul had gotten rid of everybody that had a familiar spirit. And here he is seeking these people out. He's seeking this woman out because God's quiet. God's not talking to him. So maybe he can get some, some clarity somewhere else. So he finds out, seeks out this woman or this witch. Now look, some sorcerers or magicians or witches or whatever you want to call them in Scripture and today have true demonic power. It's nothing to mess around with. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to, to kind of flip it and say, oh, all, all fortune tellers are, 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 are shams. Most of them are. But some of them have real demonic power. I don't think this woman did. Because she can supposedly see the future, talk to demons, but she doesn't know when Saul shows up. Okay, look at verse number 8. And Saul disguised himself and put his on other raiment, and he went and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, I pray thee, divine unto me by the familiar spirit, and bring me him up, whom I shall name unto thee. And the woman said unto him, Behold, thou knowest what Saul hath done, how he hath cut off those that have familiar spirits, and the wizards out of the land. Wherefore then layest thou a snare for my life to cause me to die? So she doesn't even, you know, supposedly she can tell the future, but she can't tell Saul. And so I don't really think she's a, a true sorceress or psychic or whatever you want to call her. Uh, she's obviously a fake. Then look at verse number uh, 10. And Saul sware to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord liveth, there shall no punishment happen to thee for this thing. There is, there is no limit to Saul's arrogance. He knows God's word commanded that anyone that messed around with, with demonic powers were to be put to death. And here's Saul saying, hey, I know what God said. I'll protect you from God. I know God said that you're going to have to die for this, but I'll make sure nothing happens to you. He is, again, placing himself above God. Look at verse 11. Then said the woman, Whom shall I bring up unto thee? And he said, Bring me up Samuel. I'm not sure what Saul was thinking here, but if I'm going to bring up somebody from the dead using satanic means, I'm not bringing up God's best and angriest prophet. The guy who was famous for losing his temper and killing people because they disobeyed God. I'm not calling that guy up. But here's what Saul does. He's just going to do what Saul wants to do. So he doesn't, he doesn't care. Look at verse number 12. And when the woman saw Samuel... She cried with a loud voice, and the woman spake to Saul, saying, Why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. Again, this proves she's a fake, because when she cast this spell to bring up Samuel, and Samuel actually comes up, it freaked her out. She's like, this has never worked before. I don't know what's going on. Why are you trying to trick me? Uh, verse number 13. And the king said unto her, Be not afraid, for what sawest thou? And the woman said unto Saul, I saw God ascending out of the earth, and he said unto her, What form is he of? And she said, An old man cometh up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed himself. And Samuel said to Saul, Why hast thou disquieted me to bring me up? And Saul answered, I am sore distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me, and answered me no more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called thee, 
that thou mayest make known unto me what I shall do. Now, uh, it, it's possible for you to be seeking God's will and not really seeking God. That's what Saul's doing. He wants to know God's will, but he's not going about it the right way. He's going about it his way instead of the way God commands him to. You know, a lot of Christians, we make idols out of finding out God's will. What's God's plan for my life? What God's goal for my life is? But we don't really, make, we don't really seek to please Him. We, we seek some guarantee of success or some guarantee of protection from the future. Here's the thing. God never tells you that you're not going to fail at whatever you try for Him. There's no promise in the Bible where God says, if you're trying to serve me and you're trying to honor me, you're never going to fail. But God does say that everything will work out for His honor and for His glory. He does tell me that in everything, in my successes, in my failures, God will sustain me. But Saul is seeking God's will for a safety net. He wants to know everything's going to work out. He doesn't really want to walk with God or hear from God. He just wants to know... Am I going to lose everything? Is everything going to work out for me? So that's what he's seeking. Look at verse 17. And the Lord hath done unto him, as he spake by me, for the Lord hath rent the kingdom out of thine hand. Um, I'm sorry, verse 16. Then said Samuel, Wherefore then dost thou ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from thee, and has become thine enemy? And the Lord hath done to him, as he spake by me, for the Lord hath rent the kingdom out of thine hand, and given it to thy neighbor even to David, because thou obeyest not the voice of the Lord, nor executest his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore hath the Lord done this thing to thee this day. And so Saul has, you know, we, we, we saw the story several weeks ago. He disobeyed God with Amalek, and he, he's disobeyed God on multiple occasions. And here's the thing. Saul was upset that God left him. He was sad that he lost the presence of God. But he never repented of his sins. He was, he was sad that it, you know God's forsaken me, God's left me, I wish God would talk to me again. But he never repented of the sin that brought that fellowship break in the first place, and that's why God was silent. Unconfessed sin, known rebellion, will cut you off from fellowship with God. Until you repent of the rebellion, God will not hear your prayers no matter how fervent they are. Look at verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow shalt thy and thy sons be with me. The Lord also shall deliver the host of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell straightway along the earth and was sore afraid because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no bread all day or all night. Look, that's not... When you go to a, a, a fortune teller, and you're like, hey, can I talk to my dead relative? The one thing you don't want your dead relative to tell you is, see you tomorrow, buddy. You're going to be right around that tomorrow. But he, this is the message he gets. And remember, Samuel, he's the one that when you know God spoke to him as a child, goes to Eli and tells Eli, hey... By the way, God's mad because he's going to kill your sons, kill you, and take the ark away. And I'm going to, have, you know, so Samuel never pulls any punches. And now he's coming up from the grave, so he really doesn't care what people think. So he tells Saul, Saul, look, 
God's going to allow the Philistines to conquer you. He's going to allow Israel to be defeated because of you. You're going to be dead. Your sons are going to be dead. And you're going to be down here with me tomorrow. Now let's look over to 1 Samuel chapter 31. We're going to see how the book and how Saul ends. Chapter 31, verse number 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell down slain in Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons. And the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Michasua, Saul's other sons. And the battle went sore against Saul and the archers hit him and he was sore wounded of the archers. So Saul, he watches his army be defeated. He watches his army flee. He watches his sons, even Jonathan, get killed right before his eyes. Now look, this isn't one of my points. This is a good warning for us parents. Your sin affects your kids. What you do with your life and how you live your life, it's going to affect those that God has placed under you. Those that God has given you to be to be arrows in His quiver. If you live your life for yourself and you say, I'm going to do what I want to do, I don't care what God says, I don't care what anybody says, I'm going to live my life for myself, you are not just affecting you, you are affecting your entire household. Saul is proof of that. Saul did what he wanted to do. Jonathan was a good God-loving man. Abinadab was a good man. I don't know much about the third guy. But, you know, Saul and um, Jonathan and Abinadab, they were good men. They loved David. They loved God. But they're killed because of their daddy's sins. Everything you do affects those who are connected to you. Then look at, continue reading. Verse number 4. Then said Saul to his armor bearer, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul, Saul that Saul was dead, say that three times fast, he fell likewise upon his sword and he died with him. So Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, the same day together. And when the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley... And they that were on the other side of Jordan saw that the men of Israel fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead. They forsook the cities and fled. And the Philistines came and dwelt in them. And it came to pass on the morrow when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen in the Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent it to the lands of the Philistines round about to publish it in their house of their idols and among the people. And he put his armor in the house of Asheroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. That is a terrible ending to this book. It's a terrible ending to anybody's life. Israel's defeated. The Philistines are occupying the land, the cities of Israel. Saul and all of his sons are dead. Saul's body is, is desecrated. They cut off his head, they ship it to the Philistines to, as a trophy. They strip off his armor, they ship it to other cities in Philistine to kind of brag about what he did. Then they, they take his, his headless body and they nail it to the wall in the same place he was anointed as king. Terrible ending. Terrible way for his life 
to end. Israel wanted a king because they didn't trust God. And that king that they chose turned out to be a self-serving coward. He consulted with demons when he was in trouble. He didn't defeat the Philistines and he was killed by them. His life ends with Israel defeated by the Philistines. The Philistines invading the nation of Israel and living in their cities. He sees his sons die. He commits suicide. His armor stripped. His, his body, his head cut off and his body nailed to a wall as a sign of the Philistines' power. That's how the book ends. And it ends worse than the story. Remember how it started with Eli and his sons and his son's wickedness of, of taking advantage of the, the women in the temple and using their, their position for money and for sex and how God allowed them to be defeated by the, by the Philistines, allowed them to die in battle. The ark is taken. But it's still a little bit of hope because we have Samuel. But the book ends in a more tragic way. The one who was supposed to lead Israel to glory is destroyed. Now here's the, the message. It's pretty clear. Every attempt you make to be your own king will leave you worse than when you started. But the main lesson is for church people. Saul was a religious guy. He did a lot of religious things. He led Israel to several victories. He purged the land of satanic worship. He, he gave a lot of money and work to the temple. He seems to be a good man, a good husband. You read a story. There's no stories of infidelity in Saul's life. Now, I don't know who his wife is, but he had at least one because he had some sons. But there's no stories of him with concubines and, and all these other things. Like, like, you, like you even see in David's life and Solomon's life. We don't get that with Saul. Seems to be a good dad, a good husband. He prayed when he was in trouble from the outside. He looked like a good Christian man. Today, he would be successful in his career. He would be faithful to church. He would be a, a giver. He would look saved. Now, I'm not saying whether Saul was saved or not. I don't know. That's not my place to judge. Now, the Bible does tell us that Samuel told Saul, I'll see you tomorrow. You're going to be where I am. And Saul, uh, Samuel was not in heaven at this time because he couldn't go to heaven at this time because he just hadn't died yet. But he was in a place that is called Abraham's bosom. A place of comfort and waiting for those who knew God was going to come and die for them. And so they put their trust in the fact that God was going to send a Redeemer to die for their sins and to rise again to redeem them. And so they got saved the same way we got saved, but they got saved looking back. We got saved looking, uh, looking forward. We get saved looking backwards to what Jesus did. They got saved looking forward to what He was going to do. But the Bible tells us in the New Testament that the people who were in Abraham's bosom could see the people who had rejected God and were burning in hell. His soul in heaven... Saul in hell? I don't know. No matter if he's saved or not, his life is a stark warning to us. How to live our life to honor God. So we see two lessons from the story. Here's the first lesson. Number one, using God isn't the same thing 
as serving God. Using God is not the same thing as serving God. First Chronicles is the a parallel book to First Samuel. It tells the same story as First Samuel, but kind of gives different details. Look how it summarizes Saul's life in First Chronicles chapter ten. It says, "So Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not, and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it, and inquired not of the Lord. Therefore, he slew him." And turn the kingdom unto David, the son of Jesse. He did seek God, didn't he? Saul was looking, he was seeking God's counsel. He went to the priest, it didn't work. He and had tried to interpret dreams, it didn't work. He threw the dice, it didn't work. So he goes, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go, and I'm going to find, I'm going to go straight to the source. I'm going to seek Samuel's advice. So Samuel went to that. So he, he is seeking God. But he's not seeking God to be a, a blessing to God's kingdom or to be used of God. He's seeking God so that he can use God for his own benefit. He was seeking God to get out of a jam. See, God wanted to give him power on his life. But Saul wanted it on his own terms. He didn't want it on God's terms. He didn't want to surrender to God. He wanted to use God like an assistant. He wanted to treat God like a GPS. You know when you GPS, you get in your car, you put in your phone, you, you, you put in the destination, and then the GPS tells you how to get to that destination. But if you take another turn, if, you kind of, if you're off track, you know what the GPS does? It doesn't yell at you. It doesn't send lightning to strike you dead. It says, recalculate. Oh, you took, a, you took a turn I wasn't expecting. We'll figure it out. That's what Saul wanted God to do. He wanted to tell God, here's where I'm going. And if I get off track, you just recalculate to tell me how to get where I want to go. Instead of allowing God to say, Saul, here's, how you're gonna, here's where you're going and here's where you're going to get there. He tried to use God instead of be used of God. See, God isn't there to give us suggestions on how to live our life. He's not there as some divine assistant. He is the King of kings and only He can be king. Larry Crabb said, our problem is that we don't want to find God to know Him. We want to find God in order to, to use Him to make our lives work. God doesn't come to us on those terms. You either come to God on His terms, or you don't come at all. Using God isn't the same as uh, serving God. Here's the second lesson. Religious Action isn't repentance. Saul did a lot of religious things, but he never repented of his sin. He never confessed it, forsook it, and got right with God. Jesus warns us in Matthew 7 that a lot of people are going to stand before God and say, God, I was, I was active in your church. I served. I was a deacon. I was a pastor. I did what every I did what I was supposed to do. I gave money, and God's going to say, "Look, you were you were super religious, but you never repented. So you don't. You may know of me, but I don't know you. Depart from me." Look, one of the biggest fears I have as a pastor 
is that people that sit under my preaching week in and week out will be in that group one day. They'll stand before God and say, but I, I did everything right. And it's my responsibility to make sure you know where you stand with God. You look good. You're spiritual. You're faithful to church. You're a good giver. But you never truly repented of your sin. Now, there are some ways that you can know whether you are living a life of religion or a life of repentance. Here's the first way. is rationalization. You rationalize your sin. That's what Saul did. Well, God's not talking through the dreams. God's not talking to the priests. God's not talking to the magic eight ball. So I gotta do what I gotta do to, to hear from God. Thank you. So I gotta do magic seven, turn it up a little bit. <clears throat> God's not doing what I'm supposed to do, what I wanted to do, so I gotta do it any you know, my way, you know. You rationalize by saying, you know what, look at all the, the good I've done. Yeah, I may have some I may have some some skeletons in my closet. I may have some sins in my life I haven't confessed, but man, I've I've done a lot of good for the church. I've done a lot of good for God. You don't view your sin as rebellion against God. You only view your sin about how it helps how it makes you compare to other people. Well, I'm not having an affair. I'm just, I'm just looking at some pornography on my phone. It's not like I'm actually cheating on my wife. It's not like I'm actually cheating on my husband, because studies have shown that 60% of Christian women struggle with pornography just as much as men do. So ladies, don't think you're out of the woods, or you can get away with it. But you can say, well, I'm just, you know, I'm not, I'm not cheating. I'm just trying to, you know, feel something that my, my husband or my wife's not filling in. You never fully commit to serving Jesus. You just think your, your faithfulness to church makes up for it. You rationalize your sin. Third, second way we can tell is you have unchanged behavior. With your mouth, you confess that Jesus is king of your life, but your life says something different. If your mouth says something different than your life says, God accepts the testimony of your life. True repentance brings about a change of behavior. With Saul's mouth, he said that God was king. But with his life, he proved that the only king he cared about was himself. Repentance that doesn't change you in life will not save you in death. James chapter 2. Thou believe that there is one God... Thou doest well. The devils believe and tremble. Satan knows there is one God made up of three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He knows that Jesus took on the form of humanity and came into the world. And he knows Jesus as God in the flesh lived a perfect, sinless life. He knows that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and your sins, absorbing the wrath of God for, for our sins, that absorbing the punishment that He took the punishment we were due. He knows that Jesus, God in the flesh, after He died for us, was buried and rose three days later to redeem us to God the Father. Satan knows that, and Satan's going to hell. Knowing 
about God does not save you. You have to truly repent of your sins. Belief in God isn't the same thing as repentance. It doesn't matter what your mouth says. It matters what your life says. Third thing we can look at, if we're religious and not repentant, is if we have worldly sorrow, but not godly sorrow. Several times in his life, Saul wept over his sin. He did it in 1 Samuel 7, 28. He wept over the consequences of his sin, but he never wept over the fact that he sinned against God. He never truly repented. Worldly sorrow is guilt. And it is different from godly sorrow or true repentance. 1 Corinthians 7 says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. See, guilt comes out of embarrassment that you got caught. Shame that you, you got caught. It, it comes out of, out of uh, fear. That's not repentance. See, and here's the thing. Confession, confessing your sins, it doesn't equal repentance. A lot of times we'll confess, we're just trying to relieve guilt. God, I, did, I broke, you know, I, I, I sinned, I did wrong, I shouldn't have. We're just trying to fit, relieve guilt. But repentance is a Greek word, metanoia. And it means a change of mind. See, repentance means to change your mind about Jesus and adjust your life because of it. See, confession is saying you're sorry. Repentance is admitting you were wrong and changing your behavior so you don't do it again. If all you're doing is saying, well, I'm sorry I did it. You know, I'm sorry. You know, and that's, hey, look, that's good advice for, for you know, Husbands and wives as well. Husbands, I can, I can speak from experience. When you make your wife mad, saying, I'm sorry you got mad, is not an apology she will ever accept. Well, I'm sorry you took it that away. That's not what I meant. Doesn't matter. That's not confession. That, I mean, that's just, I'm sorry. Repentance is, honey, I'm so sorry that I, I said that. And I, hurt you. I never meant to hurt your feelings. And I'll never do it again. That's, that's, that's repentance. Yeah, you don't do it again. <laughs> Repentance with God isn't going, well, God, I know you say I shall not you know, do that, and I did it, oh, well, I'm sorry. It's God, you were right, I was wrong. You're holy and I'm wicked. I violated your word, and God, I'm gonna, I, 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 I throw myself on your mercy, and I help, help me never do that again. Confession is different than just repentance. But here's a fourth thing you can tell if you're, living a life of religion and not repentance. Partial compliance. This is a big one. You obey God in a lot of areas, but not every area. God, I'll obey you when it comes to my marriage and all of this, my salary. God, my money's mine. I'm going to do with my money what I want to do. I know you say give 10% back to the church, but I gotta keep it on my it doesn't matter. I want to do it. Well, God, I'll obey you in this area, but Lord, my my entertainment, who I talk, what I do, that's that's mine. I'll go to church every Sunday. I'll put money in a plate. 
I'll sing the songs. I'll look the part. But when I want to, I'm going to do what I want to do with my life. Repentance is either total or it's meaningless. Think of it like marriage. You've got a man and a woman, and the husband is a serial adulterer. He's cheated on her 50, 60, 70 times. He's got five or six girlfriends. And he comes to her and he goes, Honey, you know what? You're right. I shouldn't live that life. I shouldn't do that. So I'm going to be faithful to you every day except Tuesdays. Tuesdays, I'm doing what I want to do. But hey, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'm all yours, baby. You got all my heart those days. Tuesdays, that... You think she's going to be so happy? I go, I'm so glad you're mostly faithful. No, faithfulness is 100% or it's nothing. Obedience to God is 100% or it's nothing. Now look, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. You're never going to reach sinless perfection until you see Jesus face to face. But your sin should affect you. And you should start sinning less as you walk with Jesus. When we do sin, do we justify why we did what we did? Or do we repent of it? Saul gives us a picture of someone dying out of fellowship with God. He was religious, but he got destroyed. His body is hung on a wall. And look, we've seen it. The Bible tells us in Leviticus, anyone who dies hung on a wall or hung on a tree, the Bible says is cursed by God. Saul's death looks like a tragedy for Israel. They're humiliated. They've lost the war. Their king has been stripped and mutilated and shamed. It's a terrible end for the first attempt at a king. But there's hope in the story. See, God is preparing them for another king. One that would do things God's way, not His way. Jesus comes to the throne the same as David. When He came to earth, someone else was on the throne. We were on His throne. But He refused to take matters in His own hands. He refused to seek vengeance. After living a perfect life, He wasn't rewarded with the throne. He was crucified as a sinner. He took our curse. He died Saul's death in our place was buried and rose again to pay our debt. And if we receive Him as our Savior, we're saved from the penalty, the power of sin and death and the grave. We either look to Christ alone for salvation, or we suffer for all of eternity. As a believer, we either truly repent of our sins, or we miss the presence of God and suffer for it. So I ask you this morning, are you living like Saul? You look good, you act right, but your heart's far away from God. Maybe you have never truly been saved, but you're looking the part, you're doing all the right things, but you're holding on to that, that salvation for yourself. As a believer, are you truly repentant of God? Have you truly asked God to forgive you of your sins, or are you living out of fellowship with Him? Saul's a warning to all of us.
Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.